you know, stories are really important to humans. And I think that's especially true with pieces of art where it's something that, you know, can paint a work of art in kind of vivid colours if you know that there's this kind of narrative behind it or this is the thought that was the inspiration or this is what the piece is trying to say. But that's not to say that the creators of any particular artwork haven't had to think about those, you know, more logistical kind of practical things as well. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the podcast by No Dice Collective. I'm Joe Chesterman March, and thank you for making it this far. This is episode three, which means you must have listened to the other two, or maybe you just like Manchester Collective. I don't blame you. We're talking to Adam talking and Racky of Adam Manchester Collective backstage Manchester at Stoller Hall in Manchester. In Hall Although Manchester, Manchester Collective have only been on the scene since 2017, they already feel super established and a core part of the Manchester classical scene. When I met them almost a year ago now, that's how long this has been in the making for, the, uh, the Manchester Collective String Quartet were rehearsing George Crumb's Black Angels and Schubert's Death and the Maiden um, because Black Angels quotes the Schubert's, Schubert's piece. I found out about Manchester Collective's origin story, why they're a collective and not an ensemble or a string quartet, and being a collective ourselves, uh, that was interesting to hear, and uh, also their roots in reaching new audiences for classical music, uh, which they've done super successfully. Uh, We also get into the nitty gritty of all the small changes that create atmosphere at their concerts, the advantages of programming for stories rather than maybe technical specs, so kind of like ensemble size or composers of a certain era. So they often program on themes or stories. We'll hear more about that later. And also how they have had such success reaching these new audiences uh, using social media. So for instance, I first heard of them because everyone on my Facebook feed was was liking this page, this page with, with nothing on it and suddenly got thousands of likes. Really interesting approach, especially in classical music, which is traditionally not particularly uh, social media savvy. So the original plan for this episode was to chat with Adam and Reiki in the first half and then talk about Black Angels with them and also um, with Ruth, who is the viola player of Manchester Collective in the second half of the episode. But I realised that the interview's already topped out at about an hour. So I figured maybe we'll save the Black Angels bit for another day or some kind of outtakes episode. I would really recommend you give it a listen though. It's a fantastic piece, really, really great piece. I would also recommend looking at the score. It's a fantastic score. I'll include a a link to a Google search if you want to see if you can find that yourself. Oh, also, sorry for all the bumps in this episode. Um, So these first three episodes have all just been recorded on on Zoom mics, the kind of mics you might record your practice with or a concert with to get like a rough rough take of it. so there's a lot of kind of hand hand noises so i'm really sorry about that uh we've since bought some you know more kind of like concert mics things you can hold on to without bumping the hell out of them so um don't stop listening just because it's bump city over here uh all right without further ado here is adam and later Racky of manchester collective backstage at stoller hall you know a lot of these guys are basically they're kind of craftsmen you know, first, a lot of the time, and I think a lot of composition is like that, really. It's sort of, it's kind of false advertising, this idea that you get that um, composers are, you know, a kind of tortured artists and they lock themselves up and then fevered artistic dreams or whatever. I mean, a lot of them, at least when we commission work, which we've done from some really great composers, um, 
you know, I mean, commissioning is like a, a kind of a, a deeply unromantic business where like there's a delivery date and you, they need to know the parameters of the thing and like how long it is and where it's going to be performed and what the forces are. And, you know, it's not sort of like and something will emerge, you know, I think interesting to hear about because we don't hear much about that. It's like you've got the marketing side of it, which is this is the story around the piece. Yeah. And then you've got like the reality of it. But obviously you hear the marketing side much more than you, you hear the reality. I mean, I guess we need both. Like it's really, it's important, you know, stories are really important to humans. And I think that's especially true with pieces of art where it's something that, you know, can paint uh, a work of art in kind of vivid colours if you know that there's this kind of narrative behind it or this is the thought that was the inspiration or this is what the piece is trying to say. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, the creators of, of any particular artwork haven't had to think about those, you know, more logistical kind of practical things as well. Mm, we spend yeah. a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, what gear we can fit into vans and, and, you know, app updates for our lighting rig and, you know, sort of how to set the chairs and what angle to put our carpet at. And I really believe that even though on their own, all of those issues are kind of quite mundane, it's the sum of a thousand little decisions like that, that creates a really amazing experience for an audience member. And hopefully they don't see the kind of artifice in all of those little um, decisions that you've made, but the overall effect is something where they go, oh my God, you know, everything just works and that piece was so powerful and I was really, you know, kind of took me to sort of an emotional place or whatever it is. Mm. Um, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. You're kind of trying to get out of the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and I think getting out of the way, I mean, it's like practice, you know, for a performing musician, you know, for these guys, every exquisitely we recorded the aria from the goldberg variations yesterday with raki for a project which we're doing in uh, may i think and you know every beautifully balanced kind of exquisitely phrased sort of four bars of bach you know is the sum of a thousand hours of like deeply banal practice you know of sort of scales and bow control and kind of right hand artistry and intonation all of these things that you sort of learn at college and you keep practicing for the rest of your life um i mean that's what makes you know it's like we don't go to kind of magical inspiration school where you just wait to be hit <laughs> by like the genius of bach you know it's like you practice this stuff for ages and then you develop the skills that allow you to tell a story that you want to tell and in terms of production or in terms of composition i think the analogy is is sort of you know really strong and relevant that there are lots of things that you have to think about which are not necessarily directly related to the story that you're trying to tell but which have a huge effect on that story mm, yeah because you play cello don't you yeah yeah I said, there was just a picture of you like playing cello. I think it was in the White Hotel. I was like, oh, Adam plays cello. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I have, I, I kind of retired at 29. Last November was my last gig. Oh. Um, but yeah, I, I was always a cellist. And we founded the collective, actually, um, Raki and I together. Um, Raki is our music director, who's a fiddle player. Um, there's always been this kind of artist el artist-led element to the group where you know, in some respects, we started our work because we wanted to play repertoire that we felt wasn't really be being programmed. And and then also playing with other ensembles and, and bigger orchestras on stage, I think the both of us often felt that looking out at the audience, we couldn't really see 
ourselves ever or people who are like us or or actually like young people at all or kind of black people at all or you know kind of people that aren't middle class at all like you know classical music has historically been really um sort of overwhelmingly middle-aged and or, or older and upper middle class and white and um and that was kind of the that was a big part of it from the beginning was us thinking about audiences for the music that we wanted to play and then also, I guess, you know, as a cellist and, and for Rex as a um, violinist, it was, God, wouldn't it be amazing to do, you know, Quartet for the End of Time or wouldn't it be amazing to do Black Angels or wouldn't it be amazing to commission, you know, our mate Dan, who's a great composer, to write sort of a really crazy piece for electronics and mm. quartet. Um, and so from the beginning, I guess, it's there have been a lot of kind of real sort of artistic imperatives which kind of compelled us to, to do the work. Yeah. So it's really kind of set up by the two of you. That was like the, the kind of the seed vision of it. Yeah, I mean, the Raki and I, and then Raki's sister, Simi, who's also a really fine violinist. So it was the three of us from the beginning that kind of put the whole project together. And then we sort of made a crazy, we worked on the whole thing for nearly a year before we ever played a note in public. And then we sort of launched this fully formed season kind of out of nowhere really where um, I think we played like 18 shows in our first season, kind of six distinct sort of projects. Um, and, and putting together a season like that has always been kind of a part of our work, I suppose, because we don't, you know, we're not like an orchestra that plays 120 discrete programs a year because we, we basically, for our, for our kind of main national concert season, we put together these six projects. We can hopefully create a season which is kind of more than the sum of its parts, a season where there's this kind of big kind of dramatic or theatrical or narrative arc. And hopefully, um, you know, we can take the audience that return for more than one of those shows through the year on kind of a journey where, you know, we're learning about the rep and about, you know, the, the kind of way that we're performing this stuff. And then for the audience as well, it's kind of a real journey of discovery. Um, and really there's, um, it's not a, complete season in the way that there's a lot of continuity from from project to project actually there's a huge amount of variety and it's very rare that we would do even two shows like that are string quartet projects one after another there's um you know there's always i guess the things that are in common are more about theater and storytelling and um and yeah the kind of emotional journey for the audience rather than repertoire or size of the ensemble or venues or Mm, yeah. yeah so you might not necessarily be able to like hear the arc throughout a season, but you might kind of see the like the more intellectual link or? Um, no, I think you can probably feel the arc quite strongly, I guess. Um, it's more that I suppose the thing that we think about when we're planning our shows is the, the experience that we want the audience to have rather than, oh, well, we want to, you know, we're going to program a bunch of string quartets that are all in like D minor. Um, yeah. And so... You know, for example, if we look at this season, you know, the first project was called Romantic Hero, which was a big tour with a concert pianist called Jason Gillum. The first half of that was this kind of quite interesting mashup of the Kurtag 12 microludes for string quartet and a set of Schumann miniatures called the Waldsenen for solo piano. And we kind of interspersed them with each other, which created this kind of really dis, um, discombobulating sort of 
um, you know, interesting effect for the audience, you know, discovering these really kind of hugely different styles of music in, in the one set. So that was sort of quite a theatrical experience. And we kind of hid the string quartet inside the organ at Leeds Town Hall. And so when the audience came in, it was just like a solo piano on the big stage. And then, you know, oh, he cool. played the first of the Schumann. We hadn't even announced that the Kurtag was on the program. And then the lights went out to kind of a complete blackout in the hall. And then this sort of crazy um, Kurtag just started kind of emerging from the inside of this sort of big resonant instrument, the organ at the town hall. And so that was sort of quite a theatrical thing. And then the second project, I guess, was also theatrical, but in a totally different way. That was a stage production of Pierre Lunaire by Schoenberg. Um, the third project, again, was a string quartet and electronics project, but lots of works in there that were kind of really narrative-based and meaty and quite a visceral sort of experience for the audience. And so, yeah, it's not so much that there are kind of intellectual links between the repertoire or not that the composers are related, but I think the effect on the audience is often similarly uh, kind of full-on. Mm, yeah. Like a real sense of drama in, yeah. in all of those. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So with the with the one where the string quartet was hidden in the organ, I suppose there are two ways of approaching a new piece. You've either got the like, bam, here it is, like when they're literally completely unexpected, mm. or you've got more of like an introductory kind of, this is what you're going to experience. And I suppose you, you do quite a lot of that through your social media. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we... We really try um, to avoid a situation where the audience would ever feel completely unprepared for what they're hearing. You know, we don't really like just throwing something kind of completely batshit at the crowd and then and then just kind of leaving them to deal with that and then moving on to the next thing. So either we will have... Um, you know, created some kind of content or a story or spoken to them during the concert where we say, oh, you know, this is the piece we're going to play now. This is who the composer was. You know, we kind of worked with him on on these issues or this is the, the kind of argument that this piece is trying to make. And so we kind of prepare them that way by literally telling them about the thing that they're about to hear. Or sometimes, I suppose, there's a really good dramatic argument to be made for just kind of playing something completely nuts. And then, but I think then after the after that piece, we will then often have a chat with the audience or, or sort of say, oh, you know, in the break of this concert, everyone's going to be at the bar. And so then, you know, come up to us and we'll have kind of a mini kind of breakout chat about, you know, a new commission or a, or a crazy modern piece or a crazy old piece. Um, so whether or not it's kind of effectively back announced or like back discussed or whether we kind of lead with some kind of an intro, I think with a show like the Pierre Lunaire um, project, it was quite important that audiences come into that, you know, with some sort of knowledge of what they're about to experience, just because mm. it's such a it's such a foreign sound world. And so it wasn't that we were really arming people with musical knowledge that they needed to enjoy the piece. It was more about actually driving home the message that this is a narrative work, which we performed in English and is about, you know, kind of sex and trauma and death and all of these really universal themes. Um, and so people came to the shows I mean, often, you know, it wasn't that the audiences like were not familiar with Piero Lunaire. Some of them had never seen a violin up close before, but they came to the shows sort of ready to go. Okay, wow, this is about this sort of central character who's undergoing this sort of crazy emotional journey, and it really wasn't about the music at all in terms of the way that we prepared them for the show. Mm -hmm. um, but irrespective of that, then they came along to the show and they kind of experienced the music, and you know, a lot of people sort of had quite strong and 
you know, some people had really positive reactions to the thing and some people really hated it. But I think that's, you know, if, if it's ever like, if everyone in the audience is like, oh, that was great, then I think we've sort of f***ed it, you know? Yeah, yeah. You're back at like a traditional symphony concert again. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think, you know, it's got to feel risky for us, like for us to be, if we're doing a good job, then it should feel a bit scary. So why do you, why do you think that person who'd never like heard a violin before came along? Um, I suppose, why did they come along? I guess because we put the show in front of them in some way and said, God, this is exciting. You might really kind of get off on this, come <laughs> along and have a good time. And, and so they did. I mean, I think the reason that those people don't come to concerts all the time is because, um, you know, our messaging in classical music just doesn't reach those people a lot of the time. The messaging is not that, hey, this is a really cool thing. Come along. You might have a great time. It's a great thing to experience. You know, we kind of write to people who already subscribe to our series or if we're at the BBC, then we find out who goes to the Halle and then you write to them and go, hey, we know that you love orchestral music. Come along and hear this concert. It will be super duper, which of course it always is. But I think if, you know, you live in kind of long sight and you never was it, were in a choir or you never learned an instrument as a kid and your parents never listened to music at all and you grow up kind of in a totally different world where you've never really kind of engaged with music in any kind of meaningful way, there are loads of people like that that, you know, would potentially have amazing experiences at concerts. But it's just that if we think about classical music marketing kind of in a conventional sense, then they're quite difficult to reach. And so for us, I suppose that's why social media has been so important because... Um, in a way, if you're plugging kind of um, demographic data into, you know, Facebook or whatever, then it kind of doesn't care where you're from. Um, sorry, there's someone at the door. Yeah. <laughs> Come in. Hey. Hello. Hi, Janine. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, I didn't want it first. That's I fine. Like, I could hear two points. No, as well. Yeah, God, um, yeah. Yeah, it'd be great. And I talked to one of the ladies, I don't know their names, um, about the glasses, because she broke some of the glasses. Yeah, I know. Uh, so, what are you going to do for touring? Are you, are oh, you no, gonna, we've, oh, we've got more glasses, yeah. More glasses. I think we've broken 13 glasses <gasps> so far this project. I was saying, you Lucky need number to 13. Like, I think we've got, we've got it out of our system now. Have you? You yeah. need to get a piece of wood and glue gun them all down. It's just that we have to break it down every show. We're touring to six cities. So that's the problem is that the setup, we've kind of got it figured out now, I think. Um, but yeah, the setup has to be uh, like compatible right, and can't. also portable. Right. This is what I was talking about in terms of like fun logistical challenges. <laughs> I know, because I was saying, just like get a, a piece of wood. Yeah. Right, I'm going to let you get on. Thanks, Jane. Just in really case nice I don't see you. see you later, I will be at your concert. Awesome. All right, thanks, Jane. Have a good one. I feel like George Crumb would enjoy the fact that he breaks out in classes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think he'd love that. God, yeah, I know. It's um, never again. I'm sure we will do it again, actually, because now we have a set of really good ones. Um, but it's a bit of a... <laughs> you've, got, you've got your premium crystal... Yeah, Redals, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, where were we? Because he like, specifies at the beginning, doesn't he? He's like, crystal glasses will do you the best. And I know. Then, well, and then he looks at that, you're like, no chance. Um, no. Yeah, oh, I is mean, it? they got the most resonance. Yeah, they do. They sound a lot better. Yeah. Uh, um, it's, yeah, it's great. How'd you go, Ruth? All right. Sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, no that's fine. Right. Um, yeah, it's good. We're going to... It works. Oh, sorry. So, yeah, so you're the man with the van. That's one of your roles, is it? Well, yeah. I mean, not for next season, thank God. We finally have a tech crew touring with us from September. Oh, cool. But, okay. um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose we've, we've had to... I mean, we've always done everything. Like, we've grown so fast, but it's um, there's still 
only so many people that work for the company. And so, yeah, so as, as things currently stand, I am the man with the van. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty fun, actually. Really? You, yeah. you like being I don't mind like the nice van. and high up? Yeah, like. yeah no, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally only ever been in a van once, and that was when I moved moved house, moved flat. And I was like, I could, I could get used to this. Oh, no, it's great. It's the only way to cruise down the M62, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me a bit about that, that year before Manchester Collective kind of came into the world, kind of like fully formed, as you say, because mm. it, it did seem to just kind of you could tell that it had been very prepared because it was just there. And, it, you know, I, I kind of did a bit of stalking when you first came out. I was yeah. like looking at, you know, various like alphabet and all this kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. mill and stuff like that. So talk to me about like that kind of year beforehand. How I suppose, that worked. Uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose a lot of that was a result of the fact that the in the kind of classical world, um, if you want to play in concert halls, then the, the kind of lead times in terms of planning are uh, uh, insane mm. and so we are I mean we're like it's now this we're recording this in February 2019 and we're now fixing shows in halls up to July 2021 21 wait hold on 18 wait 1920 yeah so July 2021 is wow. where we're up to in terms of booking gigs in um just because that's just kind of how the system works, I guess, with halls. I mean, everyone has a slightly different timeline, but it's generally really, really long lead times. Mm. And so when we were founded, we were kind of in this bizarre position that we sort of had to plan. We had to come up with like three seasons at the same time because we were we were going to, you know, we were going to be playing one in January. We started off and then we had to also book all the gigs in really quickly for the second season, which was starting the following January. And then we kind of had to also have a pretty good idea of what was going to happen for the season that we're currently in. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose a lot of the time with Raki, we spent kind of planning shows and, um, putting together this kind of program, which, you know, will always shift, but in a way, I think once, you know, once we've got dates in with a venue, it's then easier to be like, ah, oh, look, instead of playing, you know, this Beethoven quartet, we're going to play this other Beethoven quartet. Those kind of swaps are, are kind of easier to do closer to the actual concert dates. And then there was a lot of kind of admin stuff, you know, we're a charity. And so there's a lot of work associated with kind of registering as a non-profit and yeah. setting it all and up. you were a charity from the off. We were a charity from the yeah. off, yeah, which you sort of have to do, I think, to, to kind of get decent funding, really. Um, a lot of the kind of bigger trusts and foundations just won't give you money unless you're a non-profit. Mm. I, I guess rightly so, so they know that you're not just kind of absconding with <laughs> yeah, kind of a cool, cool hard 20 grand um, or whatever it is. So, yeah, and so that's kind of what we did. And, I mean, at the time also, like, I was working full-time playing. Raki was working full-time, you know, in all of her stuff, doing her work. And so both it was both a real in Manchester. kind of... Uh, no, Racky was London-based. Okay. Um, and so it was a real labour of love. We were kind of evenings and weekends just kind of hacking away at this thing. And then we played our first show, I think, on the 2nd of February in 2017, um, opening with a program of Schoenberg Transfigured Night and this great piece by Heinrich Bieber called The Battalia, which is this sort of nuts depiction of a soldier's life, complete with kind of you know, cannon fire and riotous drinking songs and a, a sort of, um, you know, beautiful kind of hymn sort of thing for the for the fallen soldiers, but all in this kind of really kind of insane pre-Baroque musical sound world. It's a really loose piece and it, it feels like, you know, the rules of 
music kind of hadn't really been invented yet. And so he, he does all this radical stuff, which is great fun to play and great fun to listen to, to simulate the kind of, um, the kind of Sergeant Major snare drum in one of the pieces that the cellist or the, um, the bass player has to, has to slide sheets of paper between the strings and the fingerboard. And then you hit the strings with the bow and the whole thing makes this crazy kind Mm. of rattling noise. Um, yeah, and then we played a John Cage string quartet and some Purcell from the Fairy Queen in the same program. So, in a way, the structure of that show was quite, you know, similar to the way that we still program now. It was it was a lot about creating a uh, an overall effect and kind of an emotional journey for the audience through these different pieces of repertoire, and then of course through the narrative of Transfigured Night in the second half, and and not so much about being like, oh, well, we're going to play. Uh, Mozart quartet and then we're going to have a Beethoven quartet and then there's going to be an interval and then we're going to play a quartet by Shostakovich. And when you when you were first setting up how did you kind of find those various partners like did you did you have funding from the off as a charity? Yeah or I mean that we, kind of come in the second season? No no we've always I mean we've always paid everyone kind of properly I guess that was something that we were always keen to do was that we wanted to work with really great musicians and um, I think, you know, every show that we do, the, the kind of artistic standard is is hopefully kind of developing and getting kind of even better. But but really from the beginning, we were working with amazing players. And so, yeah, we put in a bid to the Arts Council and, and kind of funded funded ourselves from from the really the first show that we did. Um, what was the what was the actual question? Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, like any other partners as well, because you, oh, yeah. you work with Alphabet, right? They're like a design company. Yeah, so we work with this great design studio called Alphabet. They're Sydney based, and I'm actually from Sydney. But weirdly, we only ever came across them after we were living in Manchester. So it's not particularly like a kind of mates from the from yeah. the motherland situation. <laughs> um, but no, we knew we knew a great designer who used to do some of the marketing for the Australian Chamber Orchestra who have kind of a really great kind of outward facing, you know, brand and image. I think, you know, they're kind of a hugely successful, really wonderful ensemble. Um, and then, you know, through our friend who put us onto someone else, who put us onto someone else, we came across this design studio who they do a lot of work actually in the theatre world and for festivals and, and are good at doing kind of campaigns which are a bit more you know, kind of kinky and unusual and, and, you know, a bit more alternative than, you know, maybe some of the more kind of core, big, hardcore classical brands. Yeah. Um, they get to do something a bit more different, a bit more kind of experimental with it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And so from the beginning with them, I mean, we were really keen that the look and the feel of the collective should mirror the way that the audience experiences the work. And so, um, you know, that first season it was a lot about a really kind of bold kind of collages where the look of each show in terms of like the posters for it or stuff online, um, you know, there was a lot of kind of texture involved and even, you know, on, on a screen, you know, you could see the, the kind of grain of the paper or the kind of the swipe of paint of the paintbrush and everything. We tried to make everything feel, you know, kind of as visceral as possible, I mm, guess. Yeah. But so we're in our fourth year now working with them. It's been awesome. Cool. Yeah. And had you, have you like set up any groups before this, or like dabbled in the world of like, arts administration? Um, yeah, I suppose because that, that is your current role, right? Yeah, kind of, no. So this is yeah. the this is kind of my full time gig now. I mean, I I guess I'd I've always kind of put on um, concerts, you know, in various sort of guises on you know kind of a much smaller scale than what we do now. But um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's really an artistic role, you know, even kind of 
you know, Martin, who's our executive producer, who I guess on paper, like he has an office job working for Manchester Collective. But I mean, even his role is a really artistic role, you know, making kind of important decisions all the time that are ultimately going to affect the way that audiences kind of perceive the show that they come to. And so, um, yeah, it feels kind of, I don't know, it feels like it's kind of unhelpful in a way to call it kind of arts administration because there's so much about it, which is, um, you know, which you can really feel in the room during a performance. Um, yeah. Hey, come in. Hey, Rocky. Hi, Rex. <laughs> do you want to join us? This is Joe. Joe, this is Rocky, who is <laughs> the music nice director of the collective. Hi. Um, I'm just kind of bullshitting on about Oh, you're on camera as well. I don't want to No, it's just audio. It's just audio. Rocky has just come out of... Um, <laughs> Uh, it's the day before our opening night of this Black Angels program. So what have you been rehearsing this morning? We did a lot on the crumb, and then we attempted some Schubert after the crumb, which is interesting. Attempted some <laughs> Schubert sounds like a... Yeah. They must be completely different to play. It is, mm. yeah. It really highlights the difference in the physicalities and different nuances of sound. Yeah. Um, is it weird switching extreme, between? A little bit horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> is it like? Is it weird switching between like electric and acoustic? It's not often that you have two within the same concert, really. So yes, yeah, a lot about sort of balancing how that works, and they're just completely different sound worlds. And you actually have to treat your instrument in a completely different way for both of the pieces. So um, for the crumb, your violin's not really a violin, whereas for the Schubert. It's very much you're playing your string instrument and you have to have your individual voice through the instrument. So it's really sort of trying to get into both of those different states of being. It's not even about sound worlds. It's about like being, Mm. (laughs) which is quite challenging. We're all a bit tired today. Day three in the Big Brother Manchester Collective household. (laughs) (laughs) So, so is this, this is, are they all full day rehearsals? This is your third day? Yes. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Okay. In a row. Um, we actually, because of some scheduling stuff, we had a day of doing different, everybody was doing different things yesterday. So we had two days, one day apart and then another day now. Ah, uh, okay. But actually poor Racky was, we were, <laughs> so on the Wednesday, which was the, the kind of third day um, that we were working together, other people were doing other work and then we had a day with Rex actually where we were making making films um, for kind of our YouTube channel and then making a trailer for our next project which we start touring I think end of April and so it really was no rest for this so what did you so yesterday yeah, yeah Adam you reco- works me hard my god <laughs> yeah so we we literally recorded um, the aria from the Goldberg Variations and Arvo Pert um, Spiegel im Spiegel which ended up I think it'll be incredible we we recorded the whole piece in one unbroken nine minute tracking shot, like Russian arc style. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, of this camera kind of, you know, moving in and around these, these kind of players in kind of a blacked out sort of concert hall situation. And then what was the last piece? It was James McMillan, um, after the tryst, which is a beautiful sort of two or three minute piece for violin and piano. Yeah. It's quite a strange. I, I, when I was listening to it yesterday, actually, it made me think. It's almost like a poem or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah a, very much. L- all of these little musical fragments, and it's not. Um, it's kind of. It doesn't really feel cohesive. Yeah, from well, your your part. I mean. Yeah, yeah, because the piano part is very 
very simple. Um, it's literally just broken chords and really beautiful, beautiful chords. And then the violin does these all these erratic gestures on top of it, sort of sighing, shouting. Um, yeah, it's just, it was interesting to, to sort of try and feel what he meant by after the tryst. It's mm. really, I love it. I think it's very gorgeous. It's a really gorgeous piece. What, what does tryst mean? Um, it's, uh, it's like two lovers together. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you reckon it's, maybe it's like, um, I mean, I'm speculating, but maybe it's like, you know, kind of a, the piano is like this kind of um, sort of post-coital bliss kind of yeah. lying in bed thing. And then like your part <laughs> like, could be like actually the, oh, the stuff that's going through your head <laughs> yeah. at that point where you're just like, oh, <laughs> shit, you know, maybe. Well, like... I think it's, I mean, it's, it's complex emotions, isn't it? You can have, you can feel serene and sort of... Um, um, intensely wound up or something at the same time it's really it's beautifully complex yeah mm. and how many takes did you have to do of the pet we did oh of the pet we yeah. just we did two, two oh, full okay. ones so you went put through like full full hell of kind of oh no like that kind of one take feeling when you get like seven minutes in and then like something goes wrong and you're like oh no you, you can't have to do that i mean you know for, like for russian arc have you seen this movie no that they no. filmed yeah, at the um hermitage museum in st petersburg so it's, I mean, we don't have to talk about Russian arc, but it's like, it's basically, it's a 90 minute film, um, which is like a, basically like a fast forward kind of overview of like the history of Russia, basically. Mm. Okay. And they filmed it in this museum and it's in one take, the whole thing. Um, and so the camera just kind of drifts through these different rooms where there are these different sets from different times. And you see these like snapshots of the history of this kind of great nation. Um, and apparently they'd never closed the museum before ever for anything and in the end they they sort of said okay we'll give you two days in the museum to make this thing mm. and the director was like no that's fine i just want one day if what? we ca if we can't do it in a day then we just won't do it at all and they got it i think on the third take they just what? did it because you can't like there's too many things like there will always be things Oh, wow. um, that will that will sort of happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that movie, actually. So the last scene of it, I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary. The last scene of it, there's two symphony orchestras actually in the movie as mm -hmm. well. And the last scene is this sort of big orchestral piece. And they've and just been waiting there for like 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and there's this moment where kind of five minutes from the end, someone in the second violin just like looks directly at camera which is, of oh, course, no. the one... It's like this one moment of grit in the oyster. But, I mean, that's kind of part of it, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. funny. I think yeah. that's actually... I mean, that sort of... It's kind of related to, I suppose, the way that we, you know, do our work a lot of the yeah, time is that we're kind of not really... Yeah, we're kind of not really interested in, mm. in kind of perfection or in presenting kind of like a, a sort of studio home listening experience for the audience. It's kind of the opposite of that, really. It's about being as close to all of the kind of like ugly, horrific, beautiful humanity of the arts experience. Mm. Mm, yeah. How, yeah. How do you feel about CD recordings? Because you haven't, as far as I'm aware, like, you've not done a CD recording yet. But would that no. be, is it relevant to do a CD recording? Like, and is well, that kind of perfectionism I mean, annoying? we're on other people's sort of albums and stuff. But, um, I mean, I think we'd like to probably end up releasing live recordings where you know you like Wigmore Hall do it and you you do have a patching session af after but it's mainly about what what is captured live mm -hmm. yeah. I mean we record most of our concerts anyway so we've got a nice archive now and yeah of course they're not all perfect but there's definitely exciting qualities to them and 
a lot of the things I like listening to, like some of Nina Simone's live recordings and stuff, they're just um, incredible. And, you know, when things are sort of on the edge and they're much more interesting to listen to, I think. Yeah, yeah there's a real energy to it. I yeah. mean, the other thing I think is if we ever did something and, you know, kind of put it out on vinyl or something, it would be about creating a record which, like, mirrors the the live experience as much as possible. So it would never be like a, here's some pieces that we sure do like and we've recorded and, uh, yeah. you know, kind of, it, you know, it would sort of be about how to put together, you know, a record which is kind of more than the sum of its parts. And so I suppose, you know, like the live concerts, that recording that you would listen to at home would hopefully make some kind of greater musical argument or take mm. you on some kind of greater emotional journey rather than just being like, Reki's going to play all of the, you know, Beethoven sonatas now. <laughs> Although, of course, that would be amazing. Oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's so theatrical, a lot of what you do. Like, it must be quite hard to put on, like, an audio-only medium in a way. Is that why you've chosen YouTube videos? I guess you kind of capture the... The yeah, energy I mean, in the room a bit that, more. But we, I mean, the programs are designed from a musical perspective. You know, there's, mm. I think what's enjoyable and the challenge we've learned as, as we've sort of delved into this is that there are so many aspects you can think about. It's not, you know, we, we get tied up by thinking about how we're playing stuff as musicians, but then also what are you playing and why are you playing it? And then how are you presenting it? There's all those different aspects. And if you if you consider them all, then they make, you know, a really wholesome whole. <laughs> I think, yeah, our, we don't sort of deliberately program theatrical things. It's more like the theatre is a sort of result of how we want to present things or... Mm. It was yeah, always there, but you chose yeah. to focus on yeah. it. Or yeah, or we actually just want to unleash it. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, a lot of the... I mean, of course, there are some pieces that that I, I guess aren't but I mean something like Death and the Maiden is like an intensely theatrical work I yeah, think like just yeah. like I mean literally from the first three seconds yeah. you're just like oh my god what yeah. fresh hell is this you know you're <laughs> kind of taken to this completely different you know world like from the off yeah. and then if we look at yesterday I guess the opposite of that is something like Spiegel im Spiegel the other mm. pet piece which is equally about you know kind of painting this sort of incredible sort of meditative experience for the listener where, you know, it really does kind of take you on this kind of inner, inner journey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess some things would work really well on, you know, just with audio alone and some mm-hmm. things are probably less effective. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the crumbs like when we just have a audio recording of this yeah. tour to see how yeah, it kind of comes true. across. Yeah. I mean, actually, I've enjoyed listening to it as I've been doing my research for the piece. So Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about um, commissioning new pieces? Do you kind of treat new pieces and old pieces in the same way? Yeah. 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 I mean, why wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you said the crumb's completely different to play. Yeah. I mean, I suppose treat it in the same way in terms of commitment to to the highest artistic goals. Mm. Um, Basically, you we've got this obligation to deliver, uh, like, to express ourselves through whatever we're playing so if we commission a piece and that's we do it just as intensely with that as we do with repertoire that we know already yeah i suppose you know you 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 have a responsibility to any composer whether or not that composer is like purcell or bach or edmund finnis you know who's still kind of alive and in his 30s um you know to kind of try and communicate the truth of their music as honestly and as effectively Mm. as you can and so um yeah i guess that put yourself um, into it because that's ultimately what's like half the thing for the audience like 
you have your your Beethoven or whatever, or your the composer, but then also you are the person performing it. So if you're not taking that equal responsibility for it, then you've kind of missed out on a good trick. Mm, yeah. <laughs> And do, do you feel there's like any additional barrier of older music where it's kind of got that association of people in wigs and kind of long coats yeah. and things like that? Is there like something you feel you need to get past? If it's yeah, a little bit. I mean, people have their expectations of things and you find yourself almost um, forming habits of what you think, how, what you think people think it should sound like. Mm. Um, and actually... No, I mean, look, I think I, I, I will never forget seeing a Hagen Quartet performance in Cologne of them playing an all Mozart program. And it was just one of the most electrifying yeah, live concerts yeah, that I've yeah. ever been to. So it's not that yeah. any of this music is like, you know, kind of shit or old. Yeah. It's just that, I mean, like anything else where there's like a long tradition of performing, like there are a lot of kind of mediocre performances of all kinds of music. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of shitty new music performances as well. And then of course yeah. there are lots of like, you know, kind of middling Beethoven symphonies that you can go mm-hmm. and see. But I think the best, the best, most sort of thrilling performance of any repertoire will be something that you know hopefully an audience can really connect with um so it's just i guess about trying to find what it is that makes a work kind of really vital and and to communicate that Mm -hmm. you know regardless of when it happened to be written Mm. that's really interesting yeah (laughs) oh i've got two questions for you because I, I asked people what they wanted to ask you. Oh. And I got two slightly tongue-in-cheek answers back. Yeah. Um, so I guess to both of you, what is your perfect Sunday? Oh, <laughs> a walk and a roast. <laughs> a day off. Actually, as musicians, we have to, we're often working on the weekend. Yeah, Sunday's so, not a good day for resting, no, is it? No, <laughs> but actually, we try, I have to try and remember to have my weekend at some point in the week. Because it might end up being on a Tuesday. My Sunday might be a Tuesday, which is quite nice because most other people are are at work then. Mm. So you have kind of a nice day off when other people are working. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've started um, going to this place called Trove in Ancoats, which is like a new cafe. I mean, Trove Mm. isn't new, but it's a new branch. And um, Sunday, go out there for brekkie, have a Bloody Mary, a few coffees, (laughs) nice kind of... You know, eggs Florentine on sourdough. And then, you know, kind of a bit boozed up and relaxed at 11 o'clock in the morning, go home. Usually, like, really take your time to do a load of washing. That's quite a nice way to, you know, just kind of get the stuff done. We are rock and roll. I know, exactly. Maybe iron some shirts. Yeah, it's a party. Party central. That sounds like a great Sunday. Yeah. Um, and the, the other question was, um, is collective the new word for ensemble? Um... I guess, uh, I, th- I suppose the reason that we're a collective is that, you know, from the beginning, a big part of what we were doing was trying to reach people who aren't really in the classical music world. And I think if we had called ourselves the Manchester Chamber Orchestra or the mm. Manchester String Quartet or something, then it just feels like an extra kind of hurdle for us to climb over, you know, to be like, oh, you know, we're the Manchester String Quartet, but like, I promise we're kind of also like interesting and you'll really enjoy it. And like, rah, rah, rah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a string quartet or an orchestra, but it's just for the people, like we had the opportunity to start something from nothing. And so it felt like, yeah, you know, the word collective different language. Yeah. There was enough kind of mystery up. and ambiguity in there that, um, that it left room for people's imaginations to fill in the gaps. Mm. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you so much for for talking to me. Pleasure. (laughs) Thanks, Joe. I've not talked about Black Angels at all. 
<laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I have a listen. All right, that's all for today's episode. Thank you so much to Adam and Raki and everyone at Manchester Collective for speaking to me. Um, they're a fantastic ensemble. I would wholeheartedly recommend you go to one of their gigs and experience them live. Every concert is different and they're all really great. <laughs> so this is episode three of three of our set of launch episodes for the podcast. I'm really glad you, you must be getting something out of it if you've got this far. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting all these pre-recorded episodes out into the world, getting out of this weird time warp that I'm currently in, where I'm pretending that I'm speaking to you in real time, but actually it's it's not even launched yet. So I'm really excited to um, be able to respond to feedback, to comments month by month, and um, see the, the podcast grow. Really excited for that. As I've been mentioning, reviews and ratings on the iTunes store are really important for the podcast in its first few weeks and months. So if you do have an Apple account or iTunes or maybe a friend with iTunes, maybe, it would be really, really helpful if you could leave a review and a rating so that we can start getting picked up by by various algorithms and all that, all that kind of nonsense. Um, if you don't have an Apple account, you're good. Don't worry. <laughs> but don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app or if you don't have a podcast app, I'll leave a link to the mailing list so you, you never miss an episode if you're listening on, on the web player. All right, that's all from me. I'll hear from you all on launch day and I'll see you next month. <laughs>